All right, let's get started. Well, hey, happy Tuesday. Hi. Welcome back to Revelation. Uh, hey, we'll be in chapters 8 through 11. We're covering a lot of stuff. We'll move fast. We're not going to read all of it. We're just going to kind of summarize. But we're spending another week talking about God's wrath and judgment. Um, I know that doesn't sound like happy stuff. And in a sense, it's not. But we'll talk about later why it's good news. But I just want to reiterate, I think I talked about this last week, but um, it's a good thing to camp out on stuff that makes us uncomfortable. It's tempting to kind of gloss over some of the heavier aspects of scripture. It's tempting to want to not think about some of the more challenging aspects of who God is and how he acts. But if we're not thinking about it, it's probably a good sign that we need to think about it. And... um, if you have a God that you can just fully understand, if you have a God that makes you comfortable all the time, if you have a God that you can put into a little box, then he's probably not really God. He's probably something you've made up. And so the aspects of God that challenge us and make us uncomfortable, um, as hard as they are, they really are beautiful aspects of his character because it's a God that we can't tame. It's a God that we can't just put into our little human systems. So we'll be in, like I said, Revelation 8 through 11. We are talking about all these wild images and symbols. Um, Last week I gave at least kind of a couple of goals for how we read Revelation. Number one, we focus on the big picture ideas. So maybe we'll have tons of questions about all the little details. But what are the big picture things that we can understand about who God is and how he works, how God works in history, how we're supposed to respond with faithfulness. And then... um, The second thing that we do is we need to think about how should we receive this on an emotional register, right? Revelation is prophecy. It's apocalypse. It's meant to be poetic. It's meant to be sort of intense. Something that is happening throughout the book of Revelation is John is taking current events, like things that were happening around his time or a little bit before, and he's kind of blowing them up to apocalyptic proportions. And then he's mixing in some Old Testament imagery and metaphors, And so back then, what was happening? We had um, a big earthquake in AD 17. We had the eruption of Mount Vesuvius uh, that destroyed Pompeii. And so you read about like these fiery mountains falling down into the sea. That might be the background of that. Uh, You just have this constant threat of invasion from the Parthians um, and other peoples. And so just all these current events, all these things going on are playing... (laughs) Uh, All these things are just playing into the images that we get all right. Um, you know, it's like today, if, if John were writing today, he would maybe mention a pandemic or nuclear warfare or like a new Florida Georgia line album, like just things that like terrify us today, uh, like the worst possible scenarios. Uh, that's how John's working. And then he's working in all these Old Testament images. We said this is just super complex in terms of like the literary structure, right? So you have these seven seals, not the animals, but like seals on a scroll that you break open. We're going to read the seventh seal today because that one introduces the seventh trumpet. Okay. Uh, So if you will look at Revelation 8, I'll read this one because I think this sounds pretty cool and I like this. Revelation 8, starting in verse 1, when he, that's the lamb, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. 
He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of God's people on the, on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God in the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So this is the, this is the seventh seal. They break it open and there's silence which is just like really just raising up all the intensity and the drama. If you've ever watched a movie and there's like a really loud like soundtrack and then like it just stops. And it's quiet, right? It's like a dramatic pause, right? So that kind of happens here. And I, I think it's interesting that the sort of the focus of this is what? It's the prayers of all of God's people. And I think it's interesting that this has been a theme kind of throughout Revelation we see the persecuted church, we see martyrs crying out to God, hey, how long, how long are you going to wait until you make things right? How long until we get justice? How long until you avenge our death? And finally, this is God answering. And I think just as we consider prayer, sometimes you pray and it just feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, right? You pray and God is totally silent. And this is encouraging because God's timing is not always our timing. And sometimes God's silence is God actually acting. <laughs> Sometimes God's silence comes right before God acts in mighty ways. Um, so this just says something beautiful about prayer, and this is God about to unleash his fury on wicked people who oppose him and oppose his purposes. Um, I think as we talk about God's wrath, it's important to, to talk about it clearly, because this is something that our atheist friends like to characterize, right? They like to talk about this God who's vindictive, he's a bully, he's mean, he's unpredictable. But what we're going to see tonight is that God is actually really patient and merciful in his wrath. Um, and God's wrath is for a good purpose. It's for the flourishing of his people and his creation. Um, God is not vindictive. He's not um, flaky or um, unpredictable in his wrath. He's, he's actually very kind and patient. So seventh seal opens up and it introduces the trumpet judgments. The first four um, kind of move quickly, and what do trumpets do in the Bible? Have you guys thought about that before? Gather the people together, okay. or signal that it's an attack and everyone needs to come together for war. Yeah. They do a lot of things. They talk about war, they send people to attack, they signal retreat, <laughs> they introduce holy days. In the New Testament, trumpets are usually talked about in association with Jesus' return. There's one place in the Old Testament that we see seven trumpets, or at least one place, and that's at the Battle of Jericho, right? Maybe you've heard that story. Maybe you've seen the Veggie Tales version. Uh, but Israel is going to um, attack Jericho, which is a, a wicked city with uh, wicked people in it. And so their battle strategy is we're going to walk around a wall <laughs> seven times. And then that last time we're going to blow seven trumpets. And then when they blow the trumpets, the whole wall just comes crumbling down. And I think that might be the background of the trumpet judgments in Revelation, because here God is um, pronouncing judgment on the wicked kingdoms of the earth. Um, all the, the wicked kingdoms that are oppressive and violent, they rule through injustice, they harm God's people. And so the trumpets blast and the, the wicked kingdoms crumble and the kingdom of God takes over the world. So I think that's probably going on in the background. Um, there's tons of parallels also with the plagues of Exodus. How familiar are you guys with the, the Exodus story? This is where Moses takes the Israelites, he leads them out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea. You guys need to understand back then in the Old Testament, that was like to them what Jesus on the cross is to us. And so when we say 
like we follow Jesus who died for our sins. Like in the old Testament, the equivalent was I'm the Lord, your God who brought you out of Egypt. Like that was their dramatic rescue event. Before they left Egypt, there were these plagues, right? There were things like blood in the Nile river, right? The Nile turned to blood. There were frogs, there were, um, you know, storms and darkness and all kinds of sickness. Those plagues were actually geared towards attacking Egypt's gods. And so Egypt, for example, worshiped the Nile River. And so turning the Nile to blood is God kind of saying, hey, you're stupid idols, don't do anything. Yahweh is the one true God. They worshiped um, the sun. And so when the sun turns to darkness, that's God saying, don't worship the sun. That doesn't do anything. And so God is pouring out his judgment on Egypt's idolatry. So the plagues do that. And then, of course, the plagues lead God's people into freedom. So I think the trumpets and then the plagues that the trumpets reveal all kind of point back to Jericho, where the wicked kingdoms crumble, and then Egypt, where God pours out his wrath on idolatry and where God rescues his people. And so here in Revelation, God is still saying, those idols that you worship are not worth it. They don't save you. They can't do anything. And number two, God is saying, it's time to be free. God redeems his people from the oppression, not just of the Roman government, not just from the human powers, but God is going to redeem us from sin and death and evil and suffering. He is going to make all things right. Something else is to notice, I don't know if y'all caught this, but when we talked about the seals, um, there were a lot of one-fourths. That was like the big fraction, like one-fourth of the earth dies. Here in the trumpet judgments, it goes to one-third. So we see this kind of heightening intensity But we also see God's mercy, right? I said we would see God's mercy. God could just wipe us all out. (laughs) He could wipe out all the sinners. He could wipe out all the wicked people. But he's consistently showing his patience. He's consistently showing his power. He's consistently giving people a chance to repent. Um, And so I think that's the point of just this long, drawn-out judgment process, but it's also the point of this increasing number to one-third. This is not important for y'all to understand this. I just thought it was super interesting. Um, there's a star that falls down and they call it Wormwood. Have you guys heard the name Wormwood from anything? Screw tape letters. Screw tape letters. So it lands in the water and it makes the water bitter so people can't drink it. Back then, they had a little bush that we eventually called Wormwood. And they would put it in water and it would turn the water green. And you would drink it and it was used to treat intestinal parasites. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, it's like the Kidron, like you could drink water of the Kidron, it'd probably give you intestinal parasites, but um, yeah, that's where that word comes from, is it's a bush that you throw in water and it cures worms. So there's that. I probably wouldn't recommend that anymore though. We have pills for that. Uh, the fifth trumpet is the first woe. So the, the four trumpets kind of move fast. And then after the fourth trumpet, uh, verse 13, he sees an eagle and it's flying midair and it calls out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Um, So back then you didn't catch woes. Back then woes, (laughs) sorry, I had to do that. Back then woes were uh, (laughs) God's coming judgment, right? Back then the woes were, uh, that's just a word that they used for like some kind of horrible, um, some kind of horrible act of judgment. And so this angel, or this, this eagle flies by and says, hey, watch out, like some really bad stuff is about to happen. And so the fifth trumpet is uh, nothing less than a plague of demon locusts. <laughs> so we'll take a look at that. Uh, if you look at chapter 9, starting in verse 3, um, the sun and the sky turn dark, and then smoke comes out of the abyss, which is 
maybe hell, maybe something like hell. <laughs> it's a place you don't want to be. Um, so smoke comes out of hell. And out of that smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, uh, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. Um, and the agony that they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but they won't find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like a woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates, like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails of stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as a king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is the destroyer. So these horrifying locust demons, these are not normal creatures, these come out of hell and they start tormenting people. But notice they're not tormenting Christians, the people who have the, the mark of the lamb or the mark of God, these are Christians, and so the, the locusts can't touch them. Um, but, but God uses these horrific demonic beings to judge evil, which is kind of a theme we've seen throughout this, is that God sometimes uses evil to judge evil. God lets evil just sort of implode on itself, and that's, that's one way that he judges. Um, there's sort of an irony here, right? The people who are attacked by the locusts, it's the inhabitants of the earth. It's people that oppose God and oppose God's people and oppose God's plan. They seek death, but they can't find it. The irony is these are the people that had been persecuting and killing Christians. And so these wicked people who are inflicting death on Christians are now wishing that they could have the worst thing they could think to do to God's people. Um, so this is a kind of a horrifying chapter. Sozo read this the other day and she said, that's literally my worst nightmare. Um, and to be fair, like demon locusts is a valid phobia. So I'll give you that, Sozo. Um, and that's, that's actually how you're supposed to read that. Remember, we're talking about the emotional register. You're supposed to read that and say like, wow, that is super terrifying. All right. Now, now some of y'all might like to have a demon locust for a pet. No, thank you. Um, I don't know. I mean, some of y'all have cats and cats are demon animals. So... Um, yeah. So I haven't made fun of cat owners in a while, so just had to do it. Um, but no, these things are kind of horrifying. And listen to how this first woe ends. John says, the first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. And so imagine like this just horrific scene, and John's like, oh yeah, that's one. Like, that's one out of three, just wait. The second woe is trumpet number six, and they look over to Euphrates River, which back then was sort of like a boundary line. Um, back in Israel's day, it was a boundary between Israel and Babylon and Assyria. Like, those are the bad guys that Israel was afraid of. And then for Rome, that was the boundary line against some of their other enemies. And so, so whenever you would hear of invasions happening, like it was usually they would come across the Euphrates. So this, the sixth trumpet shows us Euphrates, and then this huge army of like 200 million horses starts coming across the river. And they're not normal horses, just like the locusts were demon locusts. These are demon horses. They're like breathing sulfur and fire, and they have snake tails. Um, and whereas the locusts couldn't actually kill people, the demon horses and their riders could kill people. And so they kill, I think it's one-third of the earth. So that's your second terrifying um, woe. 
look at verse 20. Look at how trumpet number six wraps up. It says, The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. Um, they did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Look at that. It says they see all these horrific things and they just dig their heels in all the more. Again, this points to God's mercy. God's not just out to wipe people out for the fun of it. God's not there just to zap people dead um, in some kind of maniacal way. Like God patiently and consistently shows himself to people, gives them a chance. And then if they still don't repent, um, that's how God pours out his judgment. It's interesting that this passage talks about idols and demons. That's actually like kind of a common association back in that time. This actually goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, but Paul like kind of just flushes this out in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 20. He basically says, y'all think you're worshiping idols, but you guys are worshiping demons. <laughs> Behind every pagan false religion is demon activity. And if you worship these idols, um, you're actually worshiping something much darker than just stone or wood or gold. And think about, again, like I keep coming back to irony, but there's these demon locusts and demon horses and then it says, but they kept on worshiping their demon idols. And, and what we need to think about is that whatever you worship, if you worship anything other than God, it's going to turn around and destroy you. Right? If you worship anything other than the one true God, like your idols will destroy you. And obviously, like I think I've said this a bunch, but like we all know that nobody here worships wood or stone or gold statues in their house. If you do, like stop. <laughs> But like our idols tend to be more conceptual, right? We worship money, we worship uh, our reputation, we worship sex, we worship power, like we worship other things, but like those are just as much idols as a stone statue in your living room. And those things will destroy you. If you give your life to any of those things, if you give your life to anything other than Jesus, it will not go well for you. Um, your idols don't care about you. Only the living God can give you life to the fullest. So that's the sixth trumpet, the, the second woe. And again, just like we saw with the seals, there's this big, long interlude that kind of just breaks things up. It kind of changes the tempo. It kind of postpones the seventh trumpet. And John sees a couple extra visions. I'll just kind of summarize them here. Uh, the first one, he sees this like really impressive and incredible looking angel. Like, go back and read chapter 10. It's really interesting. But he sees this mighty angel who has like one foot on the land and one foot in the sea. And he pulls out this little scroll. And he hears a voice that says, hey, take that scroll and eat it. <laughs> um, so we have like the first like Reader's Digest that was ever published. Um, <laughs> sorry. And uh, so John eats it and it's sweet. And then it goes down into his tummy and it makes his stomach sick. He, it feels sour. So the sweetness is pretty straightforward. Like this is the word of God of some kind. It might be the gospel. It might be um, just kind of a summary of how the world events are going to fold up and, and God's rule and reign will be established um, whatever it is, like it's a word from the Lord. But then the sour stomach is kind of hard to explain. People go kind of one of two directions. Either the sour stomach is saying people are going to suffer for the good news of the gospel. The gospel is sweet, but you are going to lose your life over it. So it could be that, or it could be the gospel is sweet, but other people will reject it. The gospel is sweet, but as you share the gospel, um, other people won't have the stomach for it. So however you interpret it, the, the main idea is... Um, we know the good news. Christians know the truth, um, but it is not always received well. And so that kind of prepares the way for the next vision, where John sees these two witnesses. 
Um, witnesses, just a common theme in Revelation. These are two people who testify to some kind of truth. And here, of course, that truth is um, to the kingship of Jesus. And these witnesses are probably Moses and Elijah, um, just because of what they have the power to do. Um, you know, Moses had the power to turn water to blood. Elijah um, closed up the heavens from rain. And so these guys are probably Moses and Elijah. It might be symbolic of just all of God's people. <laughs> um, we also see Moses and Elijah together on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, so they're kind of just brought together a lot in these sort of end times visions. But John sees these two guys and um, they're witnessing, they're sharing the good news of Jesus. And then the beast rises up out of the abyss and kills them. He overpowers them, he kills them, and he takes their bodies and just leaves their bodies out in public. Which for us today, it's like, oh, gross. Uh, but back then, that was just a huge sign of dishonor. Like, that's how you disgrace someone, is you kill them and then you display their bodies publicly. Like, that's just a horrific thing to do. And all the peoples of the earth, or the inhabitants of the earth, these are all the wicked people who hate God, uh, they love it. They're here for it. In fact, they're so happy that these two witnesses are killed that they make um, a big celebration. It says they start exchanging gifts to honor the occasion. Um, they did not like those two prophets because... Um, it says, because those, those prophets tormented them who live on earth. Um, and that doesn't mean that Moses and Elijah, whoever these guys are, were like being cruel to them. It just means they were sharing the good news of Jesus. And uh, God's enemies did not like hearing that. But then in verse 11, it says, But after three and a half days, the breath of the life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. So what happens? These guys are killed, and then they're resurrected. Um, this is just saying that Jesus has conquered death. Those who belong to him will be resurrected on the last day. Um, this is just that common theme that we've seen over and over, that the way of victory according to the cross is different than the way of victory according to Rome. Right? The way that we conquer is not the way that any other humans or civilizations have conquered throughout all of human history, but the way that we are faithful, the way that we have success, is by allowing evil to do its worst to us. It's by giving ourselves up sacrificially. And that looks different for different people. It might mean martyrdom, but it might also just mean simply dying to ourselves to faithfully proclaim the gospel. It might mean um, a death of our reputation, right? It might mean a death of our hopes and our dreams, that you have to sacrifice something um, to be faithful to Jesus rather than compromise your integrity for, um, for any kind of idol. So it's a powerful image. Um, these interludes are not just um, there for the sake of it, but John is just constantly reminding us that the way of the Lamb is radically different than the way of the world. This uh, vision is uh, gives way to the seventh trumpet. Uh, that's in chapter 11, verse 15. It says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And so this victory through suffering paves the way finally for the kingdom of God to be fully established on earth. And listen, obviously, like, God is in charge. God's in control. Um, but there are still wicked and oppressive humans ruling things here on earth. And so the vision that we are praying for and hoping for and seeking is for God's kingdom, not just to be in heaven, but to be fully established on earth. That's what Jesus taught us to pray, right? He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, verse 16, and the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was 
because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for, for judging the dead and rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and severe hailstorms. There's something interesting with God's name here. Throughout Revelation, he's called the one who was and who is and who is to come. But did y'all catch that? Here he's just called the one who is and who was. What's up with that change? Why not who is coming? Because in this vision, that's right, he's here. He's already come. His kingdom's been established on earth. Um, and then notice that judgment here isn't just punishment. We tend to think of God's judgment and we think, oh man, like that's God sending people to hell. It's God, you know, wiping people out. And sometimes that is his judgment. But the first thing it says is the time for the judging of the dead has come and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your people who revere your name, both great and small. So God's judgment certainly involves judging wickedness, but it's also a time of rewarding his people. And, and all those terms for, you know, people, the prophets and the servants, those great and small who revere his name, that's just for all of God's people. If you belong to Jesus, you get reward on Judgment Day. Not because you're a great person, <laughs> none of us are, but we get reward on Judgment Day because we have the mark of God through the Lamb, because the Lamb has taken away our sins, has died in our place, and given us his righteousness. Um, so, yes, judgment is on wicked people. And, and notice that it's not just people that God randomly hates, people that put God in a bad mood. It says, it's the time for destroying those who destroy the earth. And so when God created the world, he created a place that is good and beautiful, a place where we can have joyful relationships with each other and a fulfilling relationship with God. It's a place where we have meaningful work, where we have hope and friendship and beauty. And the people that God pours out his wrath on are the people that oppose his purposes. It's for the people that destroy and pollute like the good thing that God has created. This isn't necessarily an environmental statement. It's not like, oh, the people who don't live green. Like, man, we should be good stewards of God's earth. But it's, it's more broadly saying for those who destroy and corrupt God's good creation and all of the beautiful relationships and joy and genuine worship of the one true God, in other words, the way that it's supposed to be, the people who rip together, who rip apart that um, just beautiful web of joy and flourishing and meaning. That's why God pours out his judgment. He's not just being a bully. He's not just being vindictive, but he is upset <laughs> when people harm other people. He's upset when people point other people to idols, which turn around and destroy them. God wants us to have joy, and that joy is only found in knowing him and loving him. So just to summarize, God's wrath is kind of tough to talk about, but it's also good news. God's judgment is good news because he rewards his people. And notice that like the very end of this isn't just, oh, you get to go be in paradise. Oh, you get to go to heaven. You get to float around like angels. It doesn't say any of that. What's the, what's the great big reward that we get? At the very end, God's temple in heaven is open and we see the Ark of the Covenant. That was an image of God's relational presence with us. The Ark of the Covenant was God's loyalty to his people. It's God being with us and for us. And back then, like, it was mainly just the priests, like the high priest who got to saw the covenant. But now heaven has opened up and all of God's people get to see it. And so the hope that we have, like, yes, we'll be in a brand new creation. Yes, there's going to be no more sin or sickness or sorrow or death. He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. 
But the great hope and the great joy that we have is an intimate and meaningful relationship with God without any kind of hindrance, without anything that slows us down from enjoying God as we should. So I'm going to pray for us, um, and we'll pick back up next week. Next week, we leave all the judgments, and we get into this great big battle (laughs) between uh, God and the beast and... um, the unholy trinity, we'll talk about that next week. But it's just this great big battle royale where God reigns victorious and defeats all the things that go bump in the night and threaten the, the wholeness and integrity of his creation and his people. So let me pray for us and then we'll sing some songs and get together and pray. God, we love you. Uh, thanks for your word. Thanks for the hope of the gospel um, that everything that's broken, um, that everything that's unjust Uh, that everything that that grieves your heart will not always be the case. Um, Thank you that you're going to make things right. Um, You're going to heal all of our wounds. You're going to wipe away every tear. Um, And you're going to completely throw out all the evil that lies behind all the wicked and broken systems of our world. Um, Thank you that you're going to make all things new. Thank you for Jesus, the Lamb who uh, died the death that we deserve so that we can have a a true and life-giving relationship with you, God. Um, Just help us to walk into that joy and um, just to treasure you as we should. Amen.